Well, you know, last week uh, we spent the bulk of the time just on the mockery and the rebellion of the guards and the bystanders and the religious leaders and the Romans and the chief priests. And very little really was spent on Jesus Christ. Um, this week it's, it's different. We're, we're now not even looking at anyone else. We're kind of focused, if you will, like an upfront just snapshot of Christ hanging there, suffering, afflicted, smitten and ridiculed by us. It's kind of the picture that we have um, before us. And, and I want to remind you that, that, um, that Matthew is giving us here a theology of the cross. He's, he's helping us understand why this heaven-sent Savior would be so forsaken and ultimately crucified. You know, th- this is the darkest day that the world will ever know. The day of your death may be dark, but not like this. The day when heaven itself breaks loose on the last day, that may be dark, but it won't be dark like this. This is the darkest day where the Son of God was forsaken by the Father God. Now, sailors know this, many others as well, that that often the darkest part of the night is just prior to the sun beginning to send its rays of light into it. And, and we see in this passage that, that was read that we see the darkness of the forsakenness of Jesus. But we also heard, we also heard the beginnings of the light of his vindication. So we're going to look at two things. They're both present in the text. The darkness of Jesus in his forsakenness, we'll look at that, and then the brightness of the vindication of Jesus as seen of all the events that begin to happen after his death. So let's look at the forsakenness first. Now, you, you heard her read this idea of Jesus forsaken. So the first question that should come in your mind is, well, who forsook Jesus? I mean, by whom was he forsaken? Well, in a word, everyone. I mean, his family back in Matthew chapter 4, his disciples, they've been non-existent in the past number of chapters. They've deserted him. You have, of course, the crowds forsook Jesus. I mean, the bystanders, those not even engaged, they forsook Jesus. Even the religious leaders and the criminals forsook him. But we can understand that. We, we've seen that. But the shock of shocks is that God has forsaken Jesus. I mean, God himself forsook Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, the first hint is this idea of darkness over the land. You know, it's 12 to 3. That's the 6th to ninth hour, the brightest part of the day. And it is now dark, like a black fog. Well, how do you explain it? Well, someone to say, someone to say it's an eclipse of course, Passover is celebrated at the full moon. So if it's a full moon, that means the sun's here and the, the moon's here and the earth is here. So there's no eclipse going on with full moon. Uh, some say it was a sandstorm. Well, sandstorm does happen in the dry season. Passover was in the rainy season. No, this is a supernatural darkness. Darkness in Scripture is known as divine judgment. That's what happens in darkness. Let me give you one example, Exodus chapter 10, when God brought three days of darkness to Egypt before the judging of the firstborn of Egypt. 
No, God is doing this darkness. This darkness is coming upon as sins are being poured out on Christ. A thick, black, and you know what? There's no recorded words during the darkness. It's totally silent. Absolute silence as God is bringing out judgment, forsaking the Son. But there's more than this. We, we know that it's God because Jesus says it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, I mean Jesus is appealing to uh, God in this prayer. You know, it's unusual, really, because most prisoners or victims on a cross will curse or they'll plead for mercy um, or, or they'll speak to the guards for relief. But he appeals to God alone. My God, my God. And he's quoting Psalm 22, where David uh, is symbolically suffering in the place of Israel. And, and he quotes this psalm for himself. In other words, David wrote the psalm, but the greater David is the lens through which we understand the psalm. And it's giving word to his forsakenness. Let me read you what John Calvin said about this verse. He said, Jesus expresses his horror of great darkness. This God-forsakenness by quoting the only verse of Scripture which actually described it and which he had been which he had perfectly fulfilled. You know, Jesus isn't confused about this. He's not, he's not confused. He's not, he, he's not feeling as if something has gone wrong with the plan. He knows this is his father forsaking him. As Nick read from Isaiah 53.10, he says it was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So, so let's not leave here. When you think about the forsakenness of Jesus, it was God who forsook him. God who forsook him. And you notice that Jesus calls him God. It's the only place in Scripture he does this. Everywhere else he calls him Father. Only time. Because he's being forsaken by the Father. But, but how does God forsake him? I mean, most of you have been raised understanding that Jesus is fully God, that they had an eternal communion together, that, that they, were, they were father and that they were son, the triune God. I mean, they always, even the incarnation didn't dissuade this. The, the incarnation didn't change this. Jesus said himself, the father and I are one. They're united in purpose. They're united in direction. They're united in qualities and attributes. They are one. And yet, they're forsaken. You see, their oneness too in his cry out, my God, my God. I mean, that's covenantal language. That's love language. I mean, I want you to feel the sense of forsakenness within this union. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, let me try to give it to you in an analogy. If I'm forsaken by my neighbor, that might hurt me. I had a time of need, and I was forsaken by them. But if Carol forsook me in a time of need, That'd be crushing. It'd be destructive to my soul. Why? Because of the proximity, the closeness of our union is so intimate that for her to forsake me would be massively destructive. So you begin to just get a, a snapshot when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, but how can God be forsaking? How can God the Father forsake God the Son? I mean, is the triune God separated? Is the ontological reality of God somehow torn asunder? No, it cannot be. God cannot be separated. 
And, and how do we understand this mystery? Well, the incarnation helps us. The incarnation, when, when Jesus took on flesh, he became a human being. He didn't seem to be a human being. That's docetism. That's an old heresy. Well, Jesus just seemed to be a human. He was really God, but he, he just looked like one for our purposes. Not so. He became a full human being. And in his humanity, he experienced the absolute forsakenness of God. His words are our words. He said that for us. He's speaking our words to God, as if we should have been saying them, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, so Jesus was forsaken by God as God turned his face away from the Son of Man as he bore the sin. But why did God forsake him? What did Jesus do? I, I mean, we've seen testimony after testimony. Everybody's declaring him innocent. I mean, Judas went in. Hey, you know what? I, I've betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, Pilate said he was innocent. Pilate's wife said he was innocent. Even the centurion after the crucifixion says, certainly he was an innocent man. Everybody's saying Jesus is innocent. I mean, his accusers and his killers are calling him innocent. So why is he forsaken? Well, because we're not. In a word, we're not innocent. We're guilty. We've sinned. We have the curse of God upon us. And he has taken that upon himself. He has taken our sin. He's taken our shame. He's taken our wrath. This is why he's being forsaken. He's bearing our curse. He's hanging on our tree. I mean, the, for three hours, the wrath of God was pouring our sins upon him. He was bearing our sins. Every one of them. One author says it this way, shrouded with darkness and in spiritual anguity, seared with pain, he drank to the dregs of God's righteous, holy, and just indignation against our sin. He bore it all. This is what Jesus accepted in the Garden of Gethsemane. He accepted the cup of wrath from God. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel, that Jesus has substituted himself by becoming sin. I mean, this was said at the beginning with Joseph and the angel. You will give him the name Jesus because he will bear the sins of his people. That's what he's done. I mean, Paul said the same thing. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Or Isaiah 53, that Grace read, the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Or in 1 Peter 2, 24, on his body he bore our sins on the cross. He substituted himself for us. That's why God forsook him. That's the only reason why God forsook him was for us. Well, what happened after he was forsaken? Well, notice it says in Matthew that he cried aloud and breathed his last, or gave up his spirit. Now, we know from the other Gospels that in John's Gospel, he says, it is finished. So Jesus declares the work that he came to do is finished. He, he drank the last drop out of that cup. There was no more. It was finished. Every drop of wrath over our sins he drank. The cup was bone dry. He drank it all. It is finished, he said. And then Luke's gospel adds that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He calls him father again because it's past. No longer is he forsaken. And then Matthew says that he gave up his spirit. That's an active verb. In other words, his spirit wasn't taken from him, but it was given by him. He gave it up. He sovereignly and willingly died for us. So when it says, why have you forsaken me? There's a little bit tucked in there that God has forsaken the Son, turning his face away as the human nature of Christ bore the sin of men, the wrath of God, then he dies a human death. He, he didn't faint. He wasn't swooned. He, he wasn't semi-conscious. He died a human death. We'll look at that next week as he's buried. What do you do with this? So what do you walk away? I, I hope you're impressed, but what do you walk away from this? <clears throat> well, let, let me just give you a couple things to consider. Uh, number one would be this, that his forsakenness has resolved the dilemma of divine forgiveness. God faced a dilemma in forgiving us. Do you realize that? Most of us don't. Most of us think, well, sure, God can just forgive. In fact, some people say, you know what? It's God's job to forgive. Well, I believe they may say that with with a rightly motivated heart, but poor theology. It wasn't God's job to forgive. In fact, John Stott says this, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of ethical problems. It's a problem for God to forgive. Why is that? Well, God is holy and God is just. God is righteous and God is pure. God cannot look at sin. We may think that to overlook a sin is tolerance, but God cannot and be God. If we had a judge in Raleigh, can you imagine a judge that every time a case came by to him, he just threw the law out. He said, eh. I don't think I'm going to judge this man by this law. He can go free. And I, I think I'm going to judge this guy twice as much as I ought to judge. Can you imagine what would happen? I, I mean, if a society doesn't live by rule of law, what does it become? Anarchy. It becomes chaos. Societies can't... God, to be God, has to bring justice for him to be God. And so the problem is this, how can a righteous and holy God be loving to rebellious, mockery-filled sinners who are due his wrath? How does he do it? Well, the answer is Jesus, the substitute who bears our sin. You know what? The cross, you could say this, the cross is first for God. It's not for you. It's first for God, so that God can be both just in bringing legitimate punishment to sin and the justifier of all those who believe in him. This is huge for us. And Paul gave word to this in Romans 3 when he writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. That ought to cause your mouth to kind of just gape. I mean, it's a transaction of God toward us in favor, born by the Son. 
But, but that's just one takeaway on forsakenness. Another takeaway, why was he forsaken? To show us the nature of sin, the depth of sin, the weight of sin. I mean, we, particularly when we're in the faith for a while, we kind of develop these sin meters, if you will. These are despicable sins. These are respectable sins. The adultery and rape, murder, and, and child abuse, they're the despicable ones. that They, they just really cause us to just shake and, and, and grow violent, and we're justified in our anger. And then you slide down the scale, and a little bit of gluttony, a little bit of greed, a little bit of anger outbursts, a little bit of lusts. That, that's more respectable. Everybody struggles with those. And we have this little sin meter that, not so. I mean, every sin was poured on him. You just sang it in that beautiful last song. Here's what you sang. You sang this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. That's how God looks at it. You know, we're called as Christians, those saved by grace, to fight sin. You know, Paul says, I, I don't do that which I want to do. I, I do that which I don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, the book Mortification of Sin by John Owen, half of us have to figure out what in the world does mortification mean? We don't even know the word anymore. Mortification, mortician, means to kill, to deal with death, to put to death these deeds of the body. That's what the Lord calls us to do in light of the cross. So that when we struggle with sin, we need to get a full dose of this is what my sin brought forth. Do I really like it? Is it really as pleasurable as I thought? I mean, will I like it? Like the temptation to lust is pleasurable, but then I look at this, is it really? Is it worth it? The third thing about his forsakenness is that you can find no other comparable love for you. Now, I know many of you probably right now are even struggling in terms of does God love you? You feel abandoned, you feel perhaps forsaken, maybe it's the injury that someone's brought to you or maybe circumstances in your life have gone horribly wrong and you begin to think god do you even love me i mean what we tend to do is we project upon god that which we do so if you hurt me i may tend to back away from you a little bit that's the that's the temptation we all face we're going to back away a little bit we're going to create a little bit of distance because we're having a trouble with this person over here and, and so we project that upon God. So when we're struggling with God or we're sinning in our lives at some measure, then we, we think, God, eh, I'm going to back away from him for a while. But there is no greater demonstration of love. The, the, this is where you must drink deeply to understand how much God loves you. You sang it, but John wrote about it before in 1 John. We read, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God. That is a form of love, but it's a response to what he has already done. But that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Romans 8, Paul says the same thing. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is the challenge I would give to you. 
the love for God is not measured by what you feel necessarily, by, but by what he did. Uh, our feelings create realities for us, and I, I would ask you to challenge that. I feel this way, and therefore, boom, it somehow becomes a reality, like with pixie dust sprinkled over. Because we feel a certain way doesn't mean that is reality. I clearly remember feeling unloved when my parents disciplined me. Well, guess what? I was wrong. And so are we wrong. God's love is demonstrated by what he did, historical, in space, in time. He did it. You and I can just spend time looking, considering, reflecting. If you feel unloved or distant from God, spend time before this, this picture that he gives to us. Okay, so this is the forsakenness of God upon the sun. It's a dark, dark day. I want you to feel the weight of it. Because now I want you to feel the shafts of light that begin to bust into this darkness. Jesus was forsaken by the Father, but Jesus was vindicated by the Father as well. Look back with me in verse 50, where it says, at that moment. At what moment? At the moment that he, he gives up his spirit, what happens? Well, all heaven breaks loose, doesn't it? What happens? Well, a lot happens. The temple of the curtain was torn. Now, let, I want you just to sit back and enjoy this for a minute. I, I want to I just take a minute. This curtain, by the way, wasn't like a shower curtain. It wasn't like a shear that you may have in the living room. It was a hand breadth thick. It was stitched. It was knotted. This was torn in two. It wasn't, didn't have a tear in it. It was like a sword fell from heaven and, shoop, and tore it asunder. Now remember what this veil was for. The veil was for separating the glory of God from the rest of the temple. This curtain, this curtain prevented anyone from entering in the Holy of Holies where God was in his glory. The only person that could do this was the high priest, the holiest man, and he would go in there trembling with the blood of a perfect sacrifice and atone for the sins of the people. And, and he would have little bells around his hem so that they would know he was still standing and walking. Some say that there was a cord tied around his ankle to pull him out because if he died in there, nobody could go in there to retrieve him. So holy and so glorious is the presence of God. No one has the right to go in there. Only one, and with blood. Something had to die to let him get in there once a year. That's what it was for. And so every day at the temple, we'd all understand nobody's getting near God. Nobody's getting near God. We can't even get close to him. Well, when this curtain was torn, what it's saying to us is, number one, that the temple is now obsolete. That all the sacrifices, all the priests, all the blood sacrifices, the festivals, they're all obsolete. We don't need them anymore. They're gone. They're gone. The sacrifice has come that will end all sacrifices. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. That's what John said. John the Baptist saw him for the first time, said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus did. Jesus is the reality of what all these things were just shadows of. But not only has it made the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and Mosaic law obsolete, 
But now we can go into the Holy of Holies. Now, can you imagine the temple was torn and now we see the mercy seat? We see it. We can go into it. Jesus has opened a new way that you and I can now appeal to God. We can befriend God. He can be a father. We can have a a relationship again with him. We can now pray to him. We We don't need a mediator like a high priest with the blood of an animal. We can go in because Christ, this is the beginning of Christ's high priestly ministry, appealing to God, making God accessible for us. Now let me just tell you something. What your mind should be drawn to is, oh my, it's happened. You know, in Genesis 2, they were walking with God. They were enjoying God. There was no priest, there was no sacrifice. They enjoyed God, they loved God. And then chapter 3, they sinned against God, and what happens? He exiles them. He sends them out. They can't be with him anymore. And, and, And God puts these cherubim with swords, preventing them from coming back in to eat from the tree of life, and to be with God. Well, it just so happens that you know what was stitched on that veil? Cherubim. So when it was torn, it was a clear sign. Genesis 3 has now been undone. We can now enter the Holy of Holies. We who were in exile from God, Jesus is leading an exodus back to God. It's a new exodus. It's a better exodus. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from sin. And so now we can enter the presence of God again. This is why the writer of Hebrews is ecstatic as he says, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, we can now enter God's most holy place. You can now appeal to God. There's more. This is like Christmas this morning for you. What else happens? Well, not just has a new way been opened for us to appeal to God, but a new creation has begun. Look, rocks began to be, the Greek is they were torn apart. God tore rocks apart. The earth was shaking, and bodies were coming out of the grave. Jesus is beginning, it's like a new creation account. It's like creation is happening again. That Jesus Christ, in his death, has put death to death, and he's bringing life out of death. Now, we don't know what these bodies were. They were saints. We don't know if it was like Lazarus, where they were brought to life, and they died again, and were buried. I don't think so. I think they were probably resurrected in their resurrected bodies. Maybe would have ascended with Jesus when he ascended. But what it's showing us is that new life has begun. The old age, the old order has now ceased. And it's dying. And now the, the, these early these shoots of spring are coming up. He's showing us something else is happening now. And you notice that, that Matthew says after Jesus' resurrection this happened. What's he doing here? Well, Matthew's not concerned with chronology at this point. He's concerned with theology. How do we understand Jesus' death? It began the resurrection. It's the critical place. That's why Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him, what? Crucified, because this is what comes. Now listen, when I was sharing this with my daughter, Rachel, she goes, that would like freak me out. It would freak me out. 
if bodies started coming out and they were walking in the city? Well, it should freak you out. Uh, this isn't like a zombie apocalypse. This is a new order beginning. We have, we have taken this work and made it into, when I get told I've got cancer, I don't need to fear because I'll go to heaven and be with God. That's what we've made it to be. That is so, so far short of what God is doing. It, the, if you die and you're a believer, you will go to heaven and be with God. Just for a season of time, until Jesus Christ returns, and then you'll return with him, and you'll exist with your body, glorified, on this earth forever, enjoying life, sciences, arts. That's what he has planned. A new heavens and a new earth. Resurrected bodies living on this earth. That's what that's showing us. We're going to see this more in Matthew 28. That's what the resurrection's about. It's not that we get to go to the oncologist and feel okay. While, that, I, while I'm thankful for that, there is no doubt about that. But there's so much more planned than just life after death. It's life, as one author, N.T. Wright says, there's life after life after death. In other words, it's not just in heaven. Because in Revelation, we see heaven comes down to earth. So this is where we will exist, with these raised and resurrected bodies. This is what we have to hope. Not just floating around in some platonic, you know, kind of with wings and harps. That's not heaven. Heaven is with God on this earth. That's what he's pointing to. And it was promised back in Ezekiel 37. We read, therefore prophesy and say to them, God's giving us all these markers. This is what the sovereign Lord says, my people. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. It's really incredible. But there's yet more. Notice what happens at the cross. So hey, there's a new and living way opened. Now there's a new creation has begun. And now there's a new people being formed. Look with me at the centurion for just a minute. I mean, this centurion says, he sees everything that's happened, and he says, surely you are the Son of God. Surely you're the Son of God. Now, this ought to take you aback for a number of reasons, right? Number one, nobody's saying Jesus is the Son of God. God said it, that's true, and the demons said it, that's true. But besides Peter, in one moment of revelation, he said it in Matthew 16, 16, nobody's got it, nobody picked it up. Do you see? You read through all the Gospels, nobody ever says he is the Son of God until the centurion. He's the only one that sees it. By the way, this centurion says it in the face of religious leaders who were mocking him last week. Hey, you know what? God will deliver him since he said he's God's son. Like, ha, 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 he's not delivering you. You must not be his son. And yet he says, certainly he's the son. This same centurion who just carelessly moments before Watched a man get executed. The guards mocking him. He was with the guards making sport with Jesus at the governor's palace. He was the one stoking along, making jokes, smacking, putting the thorns. He was the one doing all that work. And then he sees it. He says, no, he, he was the son of God. You see a massive conversion. Only the cross can take a soul and just twist it around and take a person like Paul who is trying to crush it to Paul who begins to plant it. 
I, I mean, only the cross can do that, the power of the cross. And Jesus said this would happen. He said they're going to come from the east and they're going to come from the west and they're all going to dine with me at the table. Oh, they're all coming. He will be the desire of all the nations. There's no doubt about that. And we're testimony to that right now. So, so when you think about the darkness of forsakenness and then you see the dawn begin to occur, the new and living way is opened up. I mean, a new creation has begun. We will never die as he died for us. We'll never die that spiritual death because he died for us. When we die, we go to be with him. And then we wait with him until that final day. We come back and we are raised anew. The perishable puts on imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. The weak puts on strength. The physical puts on spiritual. That's our destiny now. I mean, that's what we have ahead. And not just that, but we're a new people. We're part of a new people. There is, there's no longer an ethnic Jew in the sense of believing. There's no fourth temple needed. Paul says, you're neither Jew nor Greek. You're neither slave nor free. You're neither male nor female. He wasn't destroying role distinctions there. He was saying that there is a new people being formed. There is no longer God using ethnicity as a means through which to declare his glory. It's a new form, a new community, a new society. So what do we do with this? Well, I don't know that I should have to do anything with this. Just have you think about it and just bathe your mind in it. But, but let, let me just maybe seed your mind a little here. I, I think there could be some of you right now that might be feeling convicted. Convicted over the fact that you really haven't found so overwhelming this idea of drawing near to God. Worship for you, uh, prayer, the beach, sleep. Eh, I think I like the beach a little more. We, we, we undervalue this idea of a curtain being torn. Why? Why is that? I mean, I, I believe many of us struggle legitimately. We, yeah, you come into worship is if I do it, I do it. If I don't, I don't. Or prayer, yeah, if I muscle through it, I muscle through it. If I don't, I don't. It, we don't seem to get it. And, and I would just give you one reason among many. I think we have forgotten that there was a curtain. I, I think we've forgotten that you couldn't at one time go. I think we've so domesticated God, many of us, that yeah, he's always been accessible to me. He's always been there. He's always been my friend. He's always walked with me. Folks, that is way off the page. I mean, you're off the reservation on that one. He hasn't always been. We were at enmity. Paul says that we were enemies of God. You were an enemy of God. You were born against him. He was opposing you. Jesus opened the way. If you don't understand that, if I don't understand that, then worship is always going to be if it fits or prayer, if I need it. You know the, par you know the parable in Luke 7 about the man who, uh, well, Jesus was talking to Simon the Pharisee, and Simon was kind of taking issue with Jesus because the prostitute was crying all over his feet and drying his feet with her hair. And um, I mean, that might have been strange, no doubt, but Simon was taking issue with Jesus because he was being kind to this prostitute. And he tells this parable about, you know, a guy had two people that owed him money, and he decided to forgive them both, and who's going to love them more? the one that had the big debt or the one that had the small debt. And Simon says, well, the one with the big debt. And he says, that's right. And so he looks at the woman and he said, uh, 
Your faith has saved you. And then Jesus says, uh, he who has forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. It's really true. When you understand the depth to which you've been delivered, you'll love much. Blasting through that curtain will be, will be great for you. If we forget how much we have been forgiven, then so goes our attraction and love. And uh, I, I met a person a few weeks back that uh, had come out of a horrendous background, and God saved him dramatically. And I've, I've seen a number of these folks over the years, and they are like so much about Jesus. You know, you're almost wanting to get the dial. Can we turn that thing down a little bit? They are so excited about Christ. They're blasting it out everywhere. And, and particularly those that come from just absolute, you know, dumpster fire lives. I mean, their lives are ruinous, and yet God delivers them. And I'm thinking, I have so much to gain from them. Because my life was the same dumpster fire. This was a lot more cleaned up uh, for the horizontal view. So maybe if you're feeling convicted, repent of that. And, and ask God to renew your desire to worship and seek his face and enjoy the access that you have to a father. Uh, but let me say this. Secondly, I would say maybe some of you are just grateful. You're grateful to be part of a new society. You're grateful to be brought in to this community of faith. Not just this church, this is a local expression of his new people. But, but this is important local expression, no doubt. But maybe you're just thankful that you've been included. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 26, he says, how many of you were wise when you were chosen? How many of you were noble? You know, you've been drawn in by God's grace. Wouldn't that bring up gratitude and humility in you? God, thank you for saving. Even though our church and every other church in this land has its goofiness to us, we all do. We're made up of different people. I, I love sometimes to scroll down the list as I'm praying for people, and I mean, we are different from one from the other. It is incredible. What would draw us together? I mean, it, it's not commonality of education. We have various educational backgrounds. It's not commonality of ethnicity. We have various ethnicities in here. It's not commonality. It's not commonality of of social status. We've got all kinds of stratas in here. It, it, it's the gospel. It's we've all been saved by this incredible cross-bearing kin. That's what brings us together. And if that isn't the gravitational pull to our church, then we're toast. We will not survive any sort of trouble. And then thirdly, I would say there ought to be a measure of excitement with you. When you read this, you realize the power of a centurion coming to faith. I mean, if this doesn't give us missionary zeal, if this doesn't give us a passion for the nations, starting with my own family, my own neighbors, my own church, in terms of declaring this message, though it is seen as offensive, it has power that you and I, I think, are only scratching to see. I mean, the power to change the centurions of this life is contained in the proclamation of the cross. We can never move away from the cross in our declaration of the gospel. What was the last time we articulated to anybody the nature of where our hope rests? I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to be excited to say, you know what? It's true. It's true. His saving power is demonstrated through the proclamation of me sharing my love for this crucified king. So be excited about that. Be re-energized in belief.
Fight for faith to believe that, yes, speaking about the crucified king actually saves. Saves. So let's take a minute now. We've looked at the forsakenness of Christ. We've looked at the vindication of Christ. A new and living way has been opened. Praise God for that. Can you, can you take a minute and just rejoice that we, as we bow our heads and silently pray, he's going to hear you. If any one of you want you can't even get your state representative right now to do that. You couldn't get your state representative to do that right now if you wanted to, and yet we're going to bow our heads and believe that the creator of the universe, the one holding us right now, is actually interested in listening to us. He's opened a new and living way. He has begun a new creation. You are part of a creation right now. Though your flesh is fading, your life is soaring, you will never taste death like those outside of the faith. You will never taste it. And you're part of a new society of God's people through which he's going to display his glory. I would challenge you, let these words shape the conversations you have with each other. You know, when you speak to one another, and you encounter another person's struggle, bring this to bear on them. I mean, empathize with them, yes. Listen to them, yes. Be mindful about the degree of their suffering, yes. But let this be words that you can help shape the souls of others, calling them to faith. So let's take a minute now, and then Ray's going to close us in just a minute. Thank you.